Judges chapter 10. Uh, We're going to be in the book of Judges today, and typically when you think of the book of Judges, you think of Samson, Gideon, maybe even the great prophetess Deborah. Jephthah is who we are going to be talking about today, and you typically, he's forgotten. And one of the reasons he's forgotten is because of his tragic story. He, um, in the life of Israel, he was a father who made an ill-conceived vow that cost the life of his one and only son. And what Jephthah had was a faith that was a concoction of something good and then of other things terrible. He mixed a little bit of Christian meat with the additives and the preservatives of the culture. And we are going to be talking today um, from Judges because I think this is just a pertinent message right now of how we in America can mix our Americanism with our Christianity and they're not supposed to mix. One's supposed to transcend the other. But before we get into the sermon, let me talk to you about turkeys. I love Thanksgiving. Um, That turkey that we tossed, I want to eat it. My wife said she didn't want to eat it, but it was a frozen turkey. So I said, it's going to be good. Like, it's tenderized now. Um, I love turkeys. I love eating turkeys actually all the time. Turkey sandwiches from Wawa, uh, turkey bacon, turkey ground beef, turkey meatballs, One of the things that I didn't realize when I was looking at turkeys is that turkeys are actually in hot dogs. Uh, On July 4th alone, Americans consume over 150 million hot dogs. But do you know what the main ingredient is in a hot dog? Note this, mechanically separated turkeys. What is this? Well, think of the waste that you set out after you carve the turkey and you set out for the garbage truck or in our house, we set ours out in the backyard to wait for all the animals and rodents to fly down and the kids and I can watch from the window uh, what's going on. Well, all that, things that are for the trash, that's what's in hot dogs. You see, in the 60s, someone in the meat industry began to question whether there was any use for the grisly pieces of meat left clinging to the carcasses. After they cut off the recognizable pieces of meat, the answer to the question was this. Processors began siphoning the animal remains. So it's called mechanical separation, which the U.S. Department of Agriculture defines as this. A paste or batter-like poultry product manufactured by forcing bones with attached edible tissue through a sieve under high pressure. Makes you want turkeys, uh, hot dogs, doesn't it? Um, It's a process that's called advanced meat recovery. So the edible tissues can include the heart, the lung, the kidneys, and, you know, to boost your brain waves, the brain. Um, Other ingredients are corn syrup, beef, salt, Sodium phosphate, sodium nitrate, and maltodextrin. You see, the interesting thing is, Americans build their faith like that of a cheap turkey, a cheap hot dog. They take a little bit of this and mix a little bit of that, and they create a concoction, and they call it being a Christian. That's what we're going to see with Jephthah. He got a little bit of the meat of Christianity, but he mixed it with sodium nitrate and sodium phosphate of the culture and pressed it together. Judges chapter 10, and we're going to start off in verse 6. 
The people of Israel again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and served the Baals and Asherahs, the gods of Syria, the gods of Sidon, the gods of Moab, the gods of Ammonites, the gods of the Philistines, and they forsook the Lord and did not serve him. You see, just a quick review of the book of Judges. The people always did that which was evil in the sight of the Lord. They did evil. They gave themselves over to the gods of the culture in which they lived in. They then were put under, by God's judgment, under oppression or enslavement. They cry out to God. God sends a judge to save them. And then they go and they live peacefully for a couple of years, but then they repeat the cycle over and over. When you get to chapter 10, their wickedness has just gone to the umpteenth degree. In fact, they use seven different gods that they're worshiping. And seven in the Old Testament is the number for completion. And two other times do we see when it says they did evil in the sight of the Lord, does it refer to other gods? Typically, when they do evil in the sight of the Lord, it's just that, without attaching a god. But in chapter 2, verse 11, the Baals. In chapter 3, verse 7, the Baals and the Asherah. In our text, seven gods are listed. Set the seven gods represent seven different nations, and they symbolize Israel's complete abandonment of God. This is the lowest that they have fallen. They are serving the Baals, okay? Baals the gods of the Egyptians. Remember, they were delivered from the Egyptians, delivered from slavery, and yet they are serving the gods of the Egyptians. They are serving the Asherahs, the gods of Syria, the gods of Moab, and in particular, they're actually serving the three specific gods who have in the past or are currently oppressing them. Does that make any sense? Why would you serve the gods of the people that are oppressing you and enslaving you? But just this just shows how much wickedness they've gone into and now their minds have been warped. Verse 7. So the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel and he sold them into the hand of the Philistines and into the hands of the Ammonites. God sold them into the hands of those that enslaved them. Idolatry always leads to enslavement by what you make an idol in your life. Verse 8. And they crushed and oppressed the people of Israel that year. For 18 years, they oppressed all the people of Israel who were beyond the Jordan in the land of the Amorites, which is in Gilead. And the Ammonites crossed the Jordan to fight also against Judah and against Benjamin and against the house of Ephraim. So the Israel was severely distressed. And the Israelites in verse 10 do what they've done previously when they realize they're in trouble. Verse 10, the people of Israel cried out to the Lord saying, we have sinned against you because we have forsaken our God and have served the Baals. Okay, again, I told you about this reoccurring thing, but this time their cry is different. They cry out to God for deliverance, but do you notice they admitted six of the gods they were worshiping. They were trying to finesse God, thinking that God doesn't realize all the other people that they are worshiping. So God calls them out on their false amnesia. Verse 11, and the Lord said to the people of Israel, did I not save you from the Egyptians and from the Amorites and from the Ammonites and from the Philistines and the Sidians also and the Amalekites and the Maonites oppressed you and you cried out to me and I saved you out of their hand. Yet you have forsaken me and served other gods. 
Therefore, I will save you no more. The Lord has been exasperated by the sin. Their sin stinks. It reeks. It's foul-smelling, and nothing can hide their idolatry. And it gets worse. God shows them what their idolatrous hearts truly wanted. Verse 14, he tells them, Go and cry out to the gods whom you have chosen. Let them save you in this time of your distress. The Lord is saying, you guys don't really want me at all. You're not really sorry about your sin at all. You're only sorry that you got caught. That's why you didn't name the other gods. You're not sorry about your idolatry. You're not willing to make any changes. Look at how you even ask me. You're just crying out because of what I can give you, but not me. You're crying out because you don't want me, but what I do. You want deliverance without the deliverer. You want to be rescued without the rescuer. You want saving without the savior. Their idolatry led to enslavement, and their enslavement is leading them further into idolatry. Tim Keller writes in his commentary, Judges for You, Idolatry and slavery go hand in hand. Idolatry leads to slavery, slavery to idolatry. So God says to the person who worships money, if you want to live for money instead of me, that money will rule you. It will control your heart and emotions. He says, if you want to live for popularity instead of me, then popular acclaim will rule and control you. If you want another God besides me, go ahead. Let's see how merciful it is to you, how effective it is in saving you and guiding and enlightening you. In uh, the New Testament, in the book of Romans, it says that God gave them over to the things that they were idolatrous over. It's God's way of judgment to say, hey, if you think you can look after another lover, go and see what that is like. And what you'll realize, it's never going to satisfy you. It's going to come back to hurt you and harm you. Idolatry leads to enslavement and slavery to idolatry. You may be asking right now, what does this have to do with me? I don't worship idols. I'm definitely not a slave to anything. Well, here's the thing. An idol is anything that you want to give. Sorry, an idol is anything you want to give that only God can give you. An idol is whatever you find power, meaning, and its significance in apart from God. So for some people, it is success, success in their career, success in their schools, success in athletic. And if that can give you power and joy and meaning and significance, that becomes an idol for you. For some people, it's money. I will have power, joy, meaning, and significance because of the money that I acquire. Or it's relationships. This is what gives me joy and purpose and meaning or well-behaved kids or political action. You name it. There's so many things that consume our minds, that control us, that we make a God in our life. And they're idols. Some of these items are not bad items to pursue. It's not wrong to desire a healthy marriage or to seek to work hard at your job. But if you look to them, if you look to them, Instead of God for your joy and purpose and satisfaction, they will always, and I mean always, enslave you. You're never going to be truly happy if you don't attain those things. So I need more money gives over to enslavement, or I need to get more money. I need to work harder, even if I have to disregard my family 
even if it destroys them because I need money because that gives me power and joy. Or I need a satisfying relationship, so I'll leave my family to find another or I'll date someone or marry someone that doesn't hold to my biblical values because that gives me meaning in life. Or I need a proper career, so I'm going to forsake my brothers and sisters in Christ, forsake the fellowship of the saints, forsake serving because I need to climb up that ladder to pursue, to get power and to get praise from others. Or I have to be beautiful to have significance in life, so I will starve my body to reach a certain side and hate myself until I'm there. Or I need peace in life, so I'm going to binge on Netflix, binge on YouTube, binge on TikTok, binge on Instagram, binge on video games until I get my peace. Anything you put before God is an idol. Anything you want with all your heart is an idol. Anything you can't stop thinking of is an idol. Anything that you give all your love to is an idol. Maybe today, church family, the reason you're not happy, the reason you're not content, the reason you may be struggling with a mental breakdown is because you've chosen the wrong thing or the wrong person to find your joy, significance, and satisfaction. Maybe you look for the approval of others instead of resting in the arms of God. Maybe you search for Mr. and Mrs. or Mrs. Wright, not realizing that ultimate happiness can't be found in them. Maybe your family is tearing at the seams because you've been preoccupied with your career and you failed to interact with your kids or your spouse. Maybe you're suffering from despair because you're feeling extreme guilt over sexual sin but you keep going back to that broken sister and thinking can alleviate your stress. Idolatry leads to enslavement, and slavery leads to idolatry. The Israelites at this point in the book of Judges were in a state of destruction. Let's look at verse 14. God says again, Go and cry out to the gods whom you have chosen. Let them save you in the times of your distress. And the people of Israel said to the Lord, We have sinned. Do to us whatever seems good to you. Only please deliver us this day. So notice this. They put away their foreign gods from among them and served the Lord, and he became impatient over their misery. You notice that tone change there? In this instance, their repentance is actually sincere. They recognize the consequences of their sin, and notice what they said We have sinned. Do to us whatever seems good to you. God if it means that you are going to judge us, if it means that we are going to face suffering, if it means there's going to be difficulty in life, please save us even if there's ramifications for our actions. And notice also, they put away the foreign gods, not just the Baals, but all of them. They threw them away. Previously, they wanted to manipulate God, but now they just wanted God. Church family, God is not to be manipulated for our own pleasures. He's not supposed to be manipulated to get our own way. Author Mark Golley writes this, Perhaps the greatest danger and the most tempting idol is to imagine that God is the servant of our desires, who meets all our needs, is there for us in crisis, exactly the way we perceive he needs to be there for us. This idol is built on a shaky foundation, as if our desires are the measures of what is best for us, as if our desires are really our deepest needs, as if the only and best way to resolve a crisis is to do so in a way we think it should be resolved, as if we were all wise, 
all-knowing, and all-loving. Too often, we manipulate God by, God, if I give so much money to this, then you'll bless me. God, if I am attending church, then you will bless me. God, if I do this service, if I'm involved in this program, then I will have your blessing on your life. But we don't manipulate God. God's in control, and he uses us however he pleases. God is for God. We should be for him. Verse 15, they're saying they want peace. But in verse 10, they just wanted to use God in order to get what they want. Verse 15, they want God and recognize what they have done. Notice in verse 16. So they put away the foreign gods from among them and served the Lord. And notice the Lord's response. He became impatient over the misery of Israel. He became impatient over the misery of Israel. That phrase, impatient over misery, literally means his spirit was short. It's used to to signify impatience and emotional fatigue. Could have been said like this. And his soul could no longer endure the misery of Israel. And the Lord became exasperated over their condition and decided to intervene. I love this text in the book of Judges because so often it reminds me that even though we may fall so far away from God, God's grace is always there for us. He has never given up on us. And notice his soul was vexed because he saw the misery and the pain and he recognized their sincerity. That is the God that we have, that he keeps on loving us despite our wickedness. So some of you here may be involved in sin or you know someone who's involved in a deep and wicked sin, but God still loves them and still wants to do amazing things in their lives. God is not through with them and he's not through with us at all, as we see in the life of the Israelites. Now we get to this point in Israel's life. They recognize their rebellion, their sin. They rec- the armies are coming to destroy them, and so they need a judge. They need someone to lead them in battle. So verse 11, uh, chapter 11, verse 1 says this. Now Jephthah the Gileadite was a mighty warrior. He was the son of a prostitute. Gilead was the father of Jephthah, and Gilead's wife also bore him sons. And when his wife's sons grew up, they drove Jephthah out and said to him, You shall not have an inheritance in our father's house, for you are the sons of another woman. Then Jephthah fled from his brothers and lived in the land of Tob. And worthless fellows collected around Jephthah and went out with him. Jephthah's father was from Gilead, and he was a man rejected by his brother. So he flees far away and lives among other rejected men, criminals, who gather around him. And probably in our modern day terms, we would say he built a mafia type group that was known for battle. Verse 4, after a time, the Ammonites made war against Israel. And when the Ammonites made war against Israel, the elders of Gilead went to bring Jephthah from the land of Tob. I want you to notice something. The elders of Gilead could be none other than his brothers, okay? Because remember, his father was Gilead. The elders of Gilead more than likely are his brothers. Verse six, they said to Jephthah, come be our leader that we may fight against the Ammonites. Verse seven, but Jephthah said to the elders of Gilead, did you not hate me and drive me out of my father's house? Why have you come to me now when you are in distress? He's basically saying, wait, hold up, freeze. You're talking to me? Wait, 
really? You're, you're talking to me. You want me to go and risk my life and go into battle for you when you all rejected me and said, oh, that, that's, uh, that's our half-brother, but he's not really our brother. Get out of here. You want me? I think he's laughing right now. Like, who do you guys think you are? You don't really want me. Notice, Israelites did again. You don't want me. You want to use me in order to accomplish your will and your plans. Verse 8, the elders of Gilead said to Jephthah, this is why we have turned to you now that you may go with us and fight against the Ammonites and be our head over all the inhabitants of Gilead. They say, no, we're really sorry. If you come home now, you can be in charge. We'll let you be the boss, little bro. You can actually boss us around. Verse 9, Jephthah said to the elders of Gilead, if you bring me home again to fight against the Ammonites and the Lord gives them over to me, I will be your head. And the elders of Gilead said to Jephthah, the Lord will be witness between us if we, not, if we do not do as you say. So Jephthah went with the elders of Gilead and the people made him head and leader over them. And Jephthah spoke all his words before the Lord at Mizpah. He made a deal with his brothers before the Lord, a solid and religious significance. And then verse 12 through 28, for time's sake, I'm just going to summarize. He's trying to reason with the Ammonites about stopping their attack because they want to attack and destroy them. So the land that the Ammonites were trying to take, they said that this is our land. We have owned it forever. It wasn't ever actually their land. It was the Amorites' land. Um, The Israelites, the only reason they conquered this land is because they were passing through this land, and the Amorites came and attacked them, and God gave them victory in battle, and that's why they are there. And then he says to them, if this land really belonged to you, you had 300 years before this to conquer it, but you want it now? Really? You really want it now? He's not buying it. But they say, whatever, we're still going to attack you. So Jephthah's response, then the spirit of the Lord was upon Jephthah, and he passed through Gilead and Manasseh and passed on to Mizpah of Gilead, and from Mizpah of Gilead passed on to the Amorites. And then he made a vow, verse 30. Jephthah made a vow to the Lord and said, if you will give the Ammonites into my hand, that whatever comes from the doors of my house to meet me, when I return in peace from the Ammonites shall be the Lord's, and I will offer it up for a burnt offering. We're going to get more into the story, but I want you to notice what he says in verse 30. If you will give the Ammonites into my hand, he puts a conditional clause on it. If you will, reading through the book of Judges and reading through Exodus and other things, God will deliver the people when they cry out to him. God will save them, but here it shows that he is a mixture of faith with Christianity and a little bit of paganism and doubting, is God really going to save? This vow is going to cost him. Let's continue, verse 32. So Jephthah crossed over to the Ammonites to fight against them, and the Lord gave them into his hand. And Jephthah came to the home at Mizpah, and behold, his daughter came out to meet him with tambourines, with dances. She was his only child. Besides her, he had neither son nor daughter. And as soon as he saw her, he tore his clothes and said, Alas, my daughter, you have brought me very low. You have become the cause of great trouble to me. For I have opened my mouth to the Lord, and I cannot take back my vow. She said to him, My father, you have opened your mouth to the Lord. Do to me according to what has gone out of your mouth. Now that the Lord has avenged you 
on your enemies on the Ammonites. So she said to her father, let this thing be done for me. Leave me alone two months that I may go up and down on the mountains and weep for my virginity. I am my companions. So he said, go. Then he sent her away for two months and she departed. She and her companions and wept for her virginity on the mountains. And at the end of two months, she returned to her father who did with her according to his vow that he made. So let's understand this. What did he do? Jephthah had to sacrifice his one and only daughter because of his foolish vow that he made. A lot of back and forth goes amongst Bible scholars as to what happened. Some try to soften the impact and say that he, he intended for an animal to appear. The problem is they didn't have house pets like we do now. They wouldn't have a cat that's there or dogs. They didn't do that. Some say that they didn't actually kill his daughter, that sacrificing meant that he made her stay unmarried for the rest of her life and she was committed to serving in the temple. But it doesn't give any reason to why would they go and mourn for two months for her virginity? And why would it, the daughter say, complete the vow that you've made because the Lord is there? What he probably thought was one of his many servants were going to walk out because it is true. If you remember in King David, when he won victory in battle, people would come out, the ladies would come out crying, not crying, they were cheering and laughing and praising the Lord because of the victory. So he probably thought a servant would be the one that made him, but it wasn't. It was his one and only child. Now, why did he do this? This is how men pleased the pagan gods of their day. You offered sacrifices to gain the favor of the gods. But here's the thing. God never approved of this. Deuteronomy 12:31. You shall not worship the Lord your God in that way. For every abominable thing that the Lord hates, they have done for their gods. For they even burn their sons and their daughters in the fire to the gods. Deuteronomy 18.10. There shall not be found among you anyone who burns his son or daughter as an offering. What's sad about this is the Israelites were worshiping the gods of the people. And one of the gods of the Ammonites, Milcom, the way you worshiped him was sacrifices. So they go, Jephthah leads them into battle. They're victorious over the Ammonites, but the vow he made was a vow they would have also made to their gods. How can he do this? He tried to buy off God. He was living by pagan righteousness. And sadly, you're thinking, how does this apply? This same type of thinking has infiltrated churches today. And this is the thing. It's called the new prosperity gospel. Oftentimes we think prosperity gospel, we see those preachers that have their flashy suits on and they're flying in their jets and they have their mansion and they're on TBN channel and they're major televangelists, whatever it may be. And they say, God wants you to be healthy and wealthy and prosperous. That is the old form of the prosperity gospel. The new form of the prosperity gospel is more subtle, and it comes in so many different forms. And it goes like this. Dream God-sized dreams. God has a vision for your life. Discover your destiny. God wants you to turn your setback into a comeback. God is something greater for you. You've untapped potential that God wants to unleash. The best is yet to come. Now, the thing is, when I say it doesn't necessarily 
sound wrong. It's kind of there. But that's the thing with the new prosperity gospel. It's subtle. If you're not really looking to it, if you haven't immersed yourself in the word of God, you'll see what they're doing is they are trying to make Bible promises from examples in the Bible. And it's very important to understand the two, and Pastor Walker will do a very better job than myself of explaining it, but there's specific uh, teachings in the Bible that are promises that God has relayed onto you. There's other things that are examples, not necessarily promises, but examples, but they take these examples and say, this is what you should have in your life. So you can slay your giants like David slayed his giants. This is his thinking. It turns the Bible into a story about us instead of a story about God. The new prosperity gospel is not going to explicitly say health, wealth, and prosperity, but it's going to imply it. And the thing is, it's packaged way successfully, in my opinion, than the prosperity gospel you see on TV. Because the average preacher nowadays, they don't look like this. They are hip. They're wearing jeans. They're wearing $400, $500 uh, Nike shoes, Jordan shoes. They have the social media that, honestly, some of them are even better than the celebrities. They have saying and phrases. Uh, one preacher specifically, he was able to, when Jesus was on the water, he was able to make rain come down from his stage and flood his stage during a sermon. And they're making the whole experience a event every time, and it just has to get better and better, and they're waiting for this moment. Instead of health and wealth, though, the new prosperity gospel focuses on this, your self-worth, your self-actualization, to discover who you really are, to express yourself. But it asks the question, do you exist for God, or does God exist for you? What does it mean? Is God that God is for my good? Is he my good, like my prosperity? So now they'll say success, but it's like, it's vague, but the success they're talking about, your career success, your relational success. And even, here's a thing that I found, I'm not sure what you're going to think about, but I found, wow, this, look at how they're twisting this. There is, at some of these churches, a 90-day tithe challenge. Now, the, here's the thing, we should tithe. We should give Lord our money because he deserves a bit. Look at how churches package it. Let me read this from a website of a church. For many, the idea of bringing the first 10% of income to the church seems overwhelming. The thing is, it doesn't matter how much or how little we make, God promises, notice this, to pour out blessings on us when we tithe. Tithing is about training our hearts to trust God as his word. Countless people experience, notice this, God's blessings when they tithe, but often the first step is the hardest one. So here's the thing. That's why we created the 90-day tithe challenge. You are not presently tithing, giving 10% of your income. And if you're willing to make this commitment, the 90-day tithe challenge is this. We commit to you that if you tithe for 90 days, and notice what they say, God doesn't hold true to his promises of blessing you we will refund your money 100% of the time. And when I say this to you, here's the thing. These are actually at churches that are evangelical, and they would, some of them actually, at times, they won't say it explicitly, but preach the gospel. But it's so subtle, and it warps your thinking. 
There's a teaching called deconstruction where people are tearing out their faith. Why are they tearing down their faith? Because they're built off flimsy things like this. Oh, money back guaranteed on your tithe. That's the thinking. And God is going to give you blessings and blessings. That's that mindset. And notice what it is. It's not about what your money can do for the kingdom. It's about what your money can do for you and your life. This is the warped thinking that exists. This thinking, honestly, is the same thinking that the Israelites had. How can I use God for me? Not to serve God, but how can God accomplish my dreams and goals in life? Why else did he make this vow? How are we like him? How are we like the Israelites? Well, do you notice something with this foolish vow? It cost Jephthah. It cost him the life of his daughter. But our idolatry doesn't just only cost us. Our idolatry affects others. My idolatry as a father is going to have a negative effect on my kids. I realize that my sin, they're more than likely going to pick up on tendencies, which they already are now, and it's scaring me of what I do. The idolatry in our country is affecting the kids, or I would say the daughters of Jephthah. 36% of all marriages end in divorce. Roughly one in two children will see their parents break up. 21% of children are being raised without fathers in America. Social media, this is the sins and its devastating effect on others. One in three girls said Instagram made their body issues worse. 32% of teen girls said that they felt bad about their bodies. But our society, we say, oh, we're better than the Israelites. No, we're not. Pornography, now the average is estimated 93% of boys and 62% of girls before the age of 18 have seen porn. Pornography statistic, again, most girls over, if I'm not mistaken, over 90% of the girls that get started in the pornography industry are before the age of 13. This is our society. So we think we're better than the Israelites, but we really are not at all. We really are not. You and I need to look, not in the mirror, but at the word of God and beg him to show how our idolatry and our life is destroying others. How our idolatry is a toxic poison that's causing damage. In our society right now, here's the thing, to be true to yourself to be true to your heart. Me, as an evangelical pastor, would be celebrated today if I said, hey, I'm leaving my wife and my kids, and I'm going to go marry a man. And the world would have me on the Ellen Show, would have me on Oprah's show, and they would celebrate me and say that, oh, you've been true to yourself. They don't care how I've affected my family. They don't care about the destruction I have, but that's our society. Be true to yourself. Live your way. Be true to your heart. That's a bunch of filth. It's a bunch of trash, and we should not have any part of it. That's hot dog faith, and we don't want a hot dog faith, church family. We don't want a faith that's mixed in with this pagan culture. We are supposed to be a light to the world and a bright shining light. Stop being dingy lights. Shine brightly for the world. 
The world may think we are different, but we are God different and they need us. Why? Because in youth ministries, I see too many teens that are coming from broken families and the thing they need is to see strong families together and see God has a different way of doing it. Our world needs us as believers to live like believers. This is the reason God got so upset with the Israelites because he planted them where they were, even with enemies surrounding them, but because he wanted them to be a light to the nations so they could see God. Church family, are we that light to the nations? So people can see us and they see Christ and they smell that aroma and they want more of it. Are we like that? You see, we needed a better Savior than Jephthah, and thankfully, Christ was the greater Savior. Christ was the greater Savior. Israel continued in idolatry. Israel took 18 years to repent. Israel was rebellious, and yet God still saved them. Jephthah wasn't the Savior that Israel needed, but Jesus is. Jesus, like Jephthah, was despised and rejected by men. Jesus, like Jephthah, was victorious in battle, but his battle was spiritual. Jesus, like Jephthah, made a vow, but it wasn't a foolish vow. But it was a vow that would cost him a life, his life for us. Jesus is the greater Savior who came to seek and to save that which was lost. He's the greater Savior who defeated sin and death and Satan. He's the greatest Savior in the world And that is who we need to worship and mimic our lives around. Let's pray. Father God, I'm just asking you today that you would help us as a church family to flee from idolatry, to cast away those detestable things for us. Lord, even the good things, if we make them more important than you, are worthless. So God, what I'm asking is that you would help every one of us tonight to go and get on our knees and beg you, Lord, where am I worshiping other things besides you? And may we repent of those idols and be a bright, shining light to our world. We thank you for this day. In your name, amen. Amen.